Again, good morning. Thank you for being here this morning. Well, George was on his deathbed. The family had gathered to say their goodbyes. All the preparations were being made. It wouldn't be long. But as he lay there on his deathbed, all at once, he smelled this wonderful, wonderful smell coming from the kitchen. It seems his wife, Dolores, was in the kitchen making his favorite cookies. As he lay there, he thought, boy, would I love to have one of those cookies. One last cookie before I die. If I had one last cookie, I could die a happy man. So he musters all his remaining strength and crawls out of his bed, crawls across the floor, down the hall and into the kitchen. With one last heroic gasp, he reaches up to the cabinet to grab his last cookie. When Dolores slaps him on the wrist and says, don't you dare, don't you know those are for the funeral? <laughs> I was surprised that some of the women laughed. I know the men would. The, men, the women would probably say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, sometimes we get so caught up in life, everyday life and the details of everyday life, we lose lock on what's really important in our lives. Really, it's all about the choices that we make. And what's sad is all too often we make choices and we don't even realize it. Our lives sort of work on autopilot. And when that happens, we all too often wind up making the wrong choices, kind of inadvertently, without any thought. Today, I'd like to talk a bit about choices, hard choices. And this lesson, lesson however, is really about God's grace. Can't talk about that enough. But the choices that we make limit God's grace, unfortunately. God's grace, which is intended to be unlimited. We do that to ourselves. I want to give you fair warning. The first two parts of this sermon are pretty easy. But the last part isn't. It's not at all easy. Reading in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted by all of her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her. Martha was too concerned about the everyday issues of life. She lost focus on what was really important. She lost focus of the opportunity she had to sit at Jesus' feet, to receive God's mercy from God's very own son. She was doing what was important, serving her guests, showing hospitality, and that's all very good. That's all very noble. But how many times are we distracted by what's good, things that need our intention, when our focus needs to be on what's best? Our Christian walk calls for us to make hard choices, and sometimes the choices that we make are between what's good and what's best. It's easy for us to justify decisions where we're doing good things, 
particularly if those good things are what we want to do anyway. After all, who will argue with us or who will condemn us for doing good? However, Christ calls us to pick the best, not just the good, and that's hard. If you've ever been in a car accident, you know one very important immutable truth that two things can't occupy the same space at the same time. I've had that happen to me a couple of times. Sometimes we like to think that that's not true, but it is, and it applies to our spiritual lives. Sometimes we think we can have our cake and eat it too, that there's room in our lives for what God offers us, the best that he offers us, but we think that there's also room in our lives for what the world offers us. If you think that, well, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. You're setting yourself up for grief and conflict because the two cannot come together. 2 Corinthians 6.14 tells us that there can be no mixing together of light and darkness. They can't occupy our spiritual lives at the same time. It says, do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness. When we try to mix light with darkness, our lives are miserable. It just can't be done. We have to choose one or the other. Philippians 2 that was read in your presence just a minute ago gives us a recipe for how to do that, how to deal with this basic truth. And I'll read it again since it's so very, very important to our walk. Verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ emptied himself, and we're called to do the very same thing. In Jesus' case, he emptied himself of equality with God. Equality with God? You'd have to say by any standard that equality with God was the very best thing. However, Jesus didn't choose the very best. He chose the very, very best. Being a servant to the glory of God the Father. To glorify God, he had to deny himself of equality with God. If we want God's abundant grace to flow into our lives, the key is that we first have to empty ourselves just as Jesus did. In Luke 9:23 it says, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a very there's a very very important a story in the Old Testament that gives a very practical example of how this works. That we need to empty ourselves if we are going to fully receive God's grace. And that story is found in 2 Kings chapter 4. It says, Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant my husband is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. 
And the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go borrow vessels at large for yourself from all of your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debt. And you and your sons can live on the rest. This is a wonderful example of God's pouring out of grace in our lives. God multiplied the resources that the woman had, her meager resources. Through faith, she did what she was told. She went out and borrowed vessels. But obviously, to make this work, the vessels had to be empty. It would have done her no good to pour oil into full vessels. It would not have made any sense at all. She poured out God's grace, this oil, into vessels that were empty. She could not have done that if the vessels were full. All too often we come to God wanting him to pour out his grace into our lives. We say, God, pour it on. But our lives are full of something else. There's just no room for his grace. No wonder we're disappointed. God tells us in John 10, 10, what he intends for us. Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. God wants us so desperately to have his grace, for us to be full of his grace. I love Malachi 3, 10. It's the last book in the Old Testament, but in it, it tells us how God intends to bless us. God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. God intends us to have his grace in our lives so that it overflows. There's no room to hold it. I'm told that the words used here to describe the abundance of God's grace and how, the, how God intends to give us his blessings, that those same words are the ones that are used to describe the outpouring of heaven during the flood of Noah's day. God wants us to have his grace in such abundance. Well, you can turn on the TV every Sunday morning and you'll hear all about God's grace, and that's a good thing. You'll hear about how wonderful it is, but all, you'll also hear that, well, all you need to do is invite Jesus into your heart, and all these wonderful blessings can be yours. But what you won't hear, at least very often, is the hard part of receiving God's grace. Receiving God's grace means emptying ourselves, just like Jesus did. It means denying ourselves. I think the fact that many preachers leave that part out is really a shame. 
But we should not expect, we have no reason to expect God's grace flowing abundantly in our lives if we refuse to empty our lives of stuff that would prevent his blessings from taking its place. If we don't deny ourselves and empty ourselves, we should not expect God's abundant gift. Well, as promised, the first two parts of this have been relatively easy, but this is the part where it gets hard and unpleasant. How often do you clean out your refrigerator? Well, if you're like me and my wife, you'll probably answer, well, maybe not quite often enough. I really like leftovers. I hate to waste food. But leftovers that have been in the refrigerator for a month or two don't seem to have quite the same appeal as they did when we first put them in. You've probably experienced that. We've cleaned out some horrible, nasty things at times. Green and black, moldy, living, furry, horrible, gross things have grown in our refrigerator. You know that. You know, you get to the point where rather than cleaning out the container, you just think, well, maybe the best thing to do is just throw it away in the trash and be done with it. But sometimes our lives are just like that. We'd like to pretend that that's not the case. We'd like to just leave the door shut on the refrigerator and just pretend that it's not there. But pretending does not make the mess go away. From time to time, we're surprised and shocked and saddened in the congregation when an adulterous affair from one of our members becomes apparent. We often respond, I thought I would never have thought such and such would do that. And again, it's a very traumatic experience in the church, and it brings quite, quite a lot of damage and, and disrepute on the church. It's very sad, but it happens. Not long ago, one of the nicest and most upstanding guys I thought I'd ever know was found guilty of setting up a phony company and selling fictitious supplies to the government. He wound up approving his own fraudulent invoices. Another high-ranking official in NASA was found guilty of taking kickbacks as he directed work to uh, particular companies. He's now in jail. I had a close acquaintance, very close acquaintance, who regularly cheats on his income tax. And he's got this all figured out. He's got a good plan. I see Abby's ears picked up uh, back there. She works for the IRS. Uh, his plan is, I'll just transpose numbers occasionally so that if there's a 1-9 and he can benefit, benefit by just saying it was a 9-1, he'll do that. And he's got this all worked out so that if he ever gets caught, he'll say, oh, that was just an honest mistake. Anybody could transpose two numbers. And he thinks all that's okay because the government just wastes the money anyway, so he justifies himself. It's horrible. Adultery, cheating, lying, stealing. We like to pretend that none of that goes on in the church, don't we? But let's be honest with ourselves. It does. Sometimes the decision we have to make is not between good and best. Those are hard decisions. Sometimes the decisions we have to make is between bad and good. But they can be hard as well. Sometimes we think in our lives that darkness in our lives can coexist with God's light 
it can't. We might say, well, after all, we're only human. We all make mistakes. And after all, we're not as bad as some. If you're thinking that way, it's wrong. Let me tell you, pretending that this way of life is okay is wrong. And we all know it. This is not just some theory. It's as practical as the day is long. If you're in an adulterous affair or thinking about it, it has got to stop. It has got to stop. If you think premarital sex, sex outside of marriage is okay, it has got to stop. It's not. It's wrong. The world says that that's okay. In fact, the world doesn't say that it's just okay. They say that premarital sex is good and that it's healthy and it's normal. It's not. It's wrong. The world is deceiving you. The world is telling you that because that's the way the world wants to behave. And if it can draw everybody into that lie, it makes them feel justified and okay. Don't be deceived. It's wrong. If we want God's grace to flow into our lives abundantly, we have to start with an empty vessel. God's grace cannot flow into your life in the way he wants to bless you if your life is full of the disgusting garbage of sin. You simply have to empty yourself of all of that. If you are not experiencing God's grace as you know you should, you simply have to clean out the refrigerator. Get rid of the garbage. If you're cheating your employer at work, it has to stop. If you lie for whatever reason, it's got to stop. If you're addicted to drugs or alcohol or pornography, it's got to stop. We have to commit ourselves to end those addictions and rely on God to help us because we can't do it ourselves. We have to empty ourselves from anything and everything that keeps us from being filled up with God's grace. Unfortunately, most people don't understand the true nature of Christianity. Christ came to seek and save the lost. And it says that while we, and that means all of us, were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christianity is all about dealing with the terminal cancer of sin. It's not about pretending we're better than we are. It's not about pretending we are not susceptible to sin. It's not about pretending... Uh, or patting one another on the back. It's not about pretending that we're better than others. Christianity is about looking at our condition, our sin, our failings, our weaknesses squarely in the face, without fear, without reservation, and admitting that there is no way we can deal with that situation, sin in our lives ourselves. There is no self-help program. There is no 12-step program. There is nothing else that can deal with that situation other than Christ. We have got to have help from above. We look to the Creator for that help we need, and He provides us the help we need through His Son, Jesus Christ. Face it, we are all dealing with sin in our lives. You're not alone. Shame is a fine thing to drive us to do the right thing, but we cannot live in shame. We are not intended to live in shame and in guilt. We have to face it squarely on and deal with it and recognize what a blessing that is in God. What we have in Christianity following Christ, 
Christ dying for us is the only way in the world that can deal with sin and our guilt successfully. There is no other way. Christ said he was the only way to the Father. So we have this ultimate gift that our sin can be taken away, our guilt can be taken away. We have to take advantage of it. While we leave here this morning, all of us as individuals who will undoubtedly sin, we will fall short. We know that. We will make the wrong choices. Let's pretend that we don't. We do. But there is an answer, and Jesus is the answer. 1 John chapter 1. If you don't remember anything this morning, remember this passage. Starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. There is no darkness in Christ Jesus. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But, and I love this but, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we empty ourselves of anything that interferes with the flow of God's grace, don't be fooled into thinking you can do that alone. You can't. We need God's grace even for that. David prayed in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We all need to continually pray that prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I know we are all here this morning because each of us wants to serve God. We want to glorify God. We want to do the right thing. We want to receive God's grace. We want to walk in the light. We want to be free of our sin and guilt. As we rely on our Almighty Father and our wonderful Savior to help us make the right choices and help us remove anything and everything that would interfere from us being filled up with the fullness of God, remember Malachi 3.10 and just watch the floodgates of heaven open. Hang on, because God's amazing love and grace is just going to astonish us. It's going to blow us away. In the next year, watch this congregation as we seek to empty ourselves and glorify God. God's grace will abound. We'll see God's grace. It's going to knock our socks off. But we have to empty ourselves. I worked on this last night, and I got up this morning, and I realized that the ending was wrong. Well, I hope you like that ending, because that, that's what it was. But I realized the, the ending that I had written was wrong. So I got up, and I rewrote it. And I took a shower, and during the shower, I wrote, well, I still got it wrong. Still not right, so I rewrote it. And that's the way it is with our life. If you see your life heading in the wrong direction, if you see your end not where you want it to be, rewrite it. That's the power of God's grace that he gives us the blessing that we can rewrite the ending. Write the ending like you want it to be. Write the ending that shows God's grace flourishing in your life, overflowing in your life, 
all of the blessings that God intends manifest in your life so that you can enjoy those blessings and share them with others. Galatians 3.27 says that when we put Christ on or we clothe ourselves when we are baptized, if you need to do that this morning or if there's any other way that the congregation can help you this morning, why don't you make your needs known as together we stand and sing.